What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with my friend Buster Schur, the founder of Hoops Nation. Buster has an amazing story. He started posting NBA content on Facebook when he was just 14 years old and has spent the last seven years building a sports-focused media company with nearly 10 million followers. In this conversation, we discuss building a media company, why Mark Cuban is buying meme accounts, how he monetizes social media content, the reason he decided to skip college, investing in historical collectibles, and more. This was an awesome episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart garments clothings called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go or on a run. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. But here's the best part. Whoop is now offering 15% off of their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the hype. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30-plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, U.S.-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code JOE. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, everyone. I'm here with my friend Buster today. We're going to talk about a lot of things. I want to talk about Instagram, building his podcast, collectibles, both physical and digital, and a bunch of other things. Buster, how are you, man? 
I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. So before we get into this, I want to learn about a bunch of things that you've been working on and some things that I think you're an expert in. But to level set a knowledge for some people who may not know who you are, just run me through your background real quick, maybe the 90 second pitch of, of who you are, how you got started, et cetera. For sure. Yeah. So I started a fantasy basketball page when I was 13 years old. And then that eventually turned into a larger media outlet where I covered everything around the NBA, all back on Facebook, and then parlayed that into another media outlet eventually called Hoops Nation, which currently has over 7 million followers across all platforms and is one of my main businesses. But that started, I want to say when I was 15 or 16, while I was simultaneously a in high school, B starting to do play-by-play broadcasting in which I actually won best in the country for play-by-play have done NBA games, do the crew league, which is an all rapper basketball league. Chris Brown won it last year. Drake came. That was fun. And then I sort of parlayed all of these things, building Hoops Nation across social media to building out a team to building my personal brand where I have a podcast and consult and help record labels with their projects and just do a lot of fun videos around my passions like collectibles in which I have a pretty large collection myself of lots of different things. But that's sort of how I came to be skipped college. I'm 21 now and passionate about all things digital, physical, and social media and obviously sports. Amazing. So I want to start with the social media stuff because you hit on it there at the end. You're 21 years old now, right? So you started this stuff when 2014, 2015, social media was around. Obviously there were certain platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, but it wasn't to the scale and to the degree that it is now. And now you're 21 years old. Like you said, you skipped college. You have 7 million followers on these pages. Why did you initially start with Facebook? Was it just kind of what was available and what was, and I imagine most of this was just fun for you at the time, right? Like you were just trying to have fun and do things on the internet. And then it turned into something much bigger than that. I had it figured out, right? It was the platform that was easiest to reach new people. It was the cheapest attention is probably the best way to put it. Back in 2015, you could post a Facebook video and the share button, which is still the mo- the share on Facebook, maybe not as much anymore, but back then was the most powerful button in all of social media because back then it shared it to literally every single person who was following you in chronological order on a feed. So I realized that if pages were sharing my posts, then the virality effect, if I knew how to detect what would be a good video was unstoppable. I mean, Hoops Nation on Facebook back when I really started it was getting a hundred million view videos, like nothing. We would gain a hundred thousand knew they were called likes, but their followers in two days yeah. like that, that was not a big deal. And then the closest thing to that since has been TikTok, right? I made the jump from Facebook to Instagram, then Instagram to Snapchat, Snapchat sort of worked. Like we have a following there, but there was never that explosion of attention. I think now actually it's a little bit hotter and easier on that front, but it's like, I'm talking about two years ago. So i made the jump to TikTok. And we grew 3 million in three months on TikTok just because it was timing and applying all the principles and good videos that we already had in a, you know, 5,000 video catalog to be able to just boost it. So 
out of all the platforms today, right? So I, I joke sometimes I use Facebook today simply for their emails for people's birthdays, <laughs> right? They email you every right. day and they tell you whose birthday it is, which is a right. fantastic use case. But I don't use the platform that much anymore. As I get older, I've just, I've gone to other things, right? So when you think about all of the social media platforms, if you were starting over and you were trying to build a business and grab as much attention as quickly as possible, whether it was for your personal brand or the media side of things, building a company, would it be TikTok? Is that your number one choice? Look, it depends what you're doing. If I'm answering this as me for Hoops Nation, the answer is TikTok. If I'm answering this for me as Buster, the answer is YouTube. If I'm answering this for me as like a collectibles person, dance is probably also a combination of TikTok and YouTube. But if I'm a business person, a little bit of both, but some Twitter mixed in there too. If I'm a gamer, the answer is Twitch. It all just depends on what you're doing and what you want to grow in. But if you're strictly follower hungry, there's nothing better than TikTok. Yeah. And how does that work? So I tweeted out a stat the other day, which I just, I thought it was wild. I don't cover TikTok, right? But I just thought it was incredible the size and the scale that they've reached in five years. I think the company was founded in 2016. So the stat that I saw was that they have a billion monthly active users. And out of all the internet users in the world today, that's about 20%. So one out of every five people is a monthly active user on TikTok, which is incredible from a pure size and scale perspective. But there's also been a lot of people who claim that when you first get on TikTok, if you post something, they'll help you go viral and you get addicted to it and all these certain things. So what has your experience been with building an audience on that platform? Good content wins no matter who you are. I saw, dude, craziest thing. Just It's so random how it works too, which I think is beautiful because good content does well. But there was this girl from my high school who just randomly, I see she's got 2 million likes on a TikTok and just did a dance. That's yeah. all it was. Just did a dance. And now is, has a hundred thousand followers in one day like that. And I think that is a beautiful thing. It lowers the entry point. All of these platforms, one after another, after another, lower the barrier to success online. And I think that that is a tremendous thing because it enables anybody who wants it bad enough to get it. That's a good example because whether it's a dance or something educational or something else, right? I don't think it really matters. People ask me about advice all the time of growing social accounts. And my experience is obviously mostly in Twitter, but I think it applies everywhere, which is to grow an account and a follower and size on a social platform. You need two things. You need good content consistently, and then you need distribution. You need people to see it, right? And they don't work without the other because if it's good content, but no one sees it, no one sees it. If everyone sees it as bad content, then no one's going to care. So I think the one thing that TikTok did really well was just putting this content in front of people and letting others decide, hey, if this is good, I'll follow this. And I'm curious, like with your experience, if you think any other platforms have executed on that really well. Executed on the ability to get people to just raw Basically distribution. just distribution, right? Because the way I think about it, I started with Twitter because I had some advantages there for sure, but also I found it to be one of the best platforms from like a legacy media perspective that had that virality to it. Your experience on Instagram is probably a little different with the ability to leverage certain pages and bounce off each other. But Twitter is great because you can retweet things, right? And it goes in people's feeds. And a lot of it's dependent on the algorithm of who sees things and other stuff like that. But for me, it was exceptional to have that ability to get it in front of a mass amount of people in a short period of time. For sure. Again, it, a lot of it just depends on who you are and what you have. But I think YouTube has also done an extraordinary... YouTube is still the A standard for social media because there's no better monetization partnership than between YouTube owned by Google and Google AdSense. 
There is nothing better on all of social media. If you have a great long form piece of content or even now short form with reels or with YouTube shorts, rather to be able to make money off of your content and then put that back into the business. Like it's much more nuanced to make money on Instagram and on TikTok and on Twitter and on Snapchat and on every other platform than it is compared to YouTube. And I'll say Twitch as well. I'll put Twitch in that category. Gotcha. All right. That makes sense. So let's walk through how you built Instagram. I would love to understand from my knowledge and everyone listening's knowledge, how you built this and not only how you built it, but how you monetize it. So how many Instagram accounts do you operate today and what are the size of them? We have a bunch in our network. I'll just use Hoops Nation as the example. Hoops Nation has a million followers on Instagram, almost five on TikTok, but Instagram was originally pushed from the Facebook that's how like, we first got it off the ground just by cross-posting and pushing people to the Instagram via giveaways and things like that. And then it was the content. I was posting 20 times a day when I was in high school just because I needed it to succeed because that's what I wanted to do. Along the way, I personally learned a lot. Like At 16, I worked at VaynerMedia, Gary Vaynerchuk's company, and I worked at Overtime when they had eight employees. I was helping them with their Instagram when they had 25,000 followers, which was funny. So it's cool to see where both of those have gone from there, but taking a little bit from everything and partnering with other media brands, partnering with other Instagram pages run by other high schoolers at the time. It's shocking when you really realize how many of these meme pages and pages with big followings are run by literal children under the age of 18. And mine was one of them. So I leveraged the relationships with those other people. I was partnering with brands. I was doing giveaways. I was doing what you call a shout for shout, where you would like shout each other out and like post each other's content. So there were a lot of different ways, but a lot of stuff like that for the early on part of the Hoops Nation Instagram process. And then monetization, people were always trying to get ads, just like a feed post or an Instagram story promoting their product when I would approve it or now, you know, somebody on the team would approve it. But the other ways that I figured out were best for me to monetize were working directly with record labels and companies who were trying to seed their stuff to everybody. So sort of acting as a little bit of like an agency, but also the creator and talent myself and on Hoops Nation's behalf and personally too. But a record label would be like, okay, hey, we have this huge artist dropping the song. Here's our budget. And then I would take that, make the content, and then get all the other pages run by all of my friends to post that stuff. Obviously that makes a lot more sense than just dealing with the label just for mine and the other pages like dealing with us too. I do a lot of this stuff with one partner and that's another great way that I've found to monetize. And what you're basically seeding that music within videos that you're posting or you're like specifically calling it out? Seeding and nobody knows that it's an ad. It's just, you see music in a video And maybe we'll put the title of the song, but I'll get that done on every sports page across social media. Yeah. So it's a way to get their song or their music basically in front of millions of people without it seeming like they're paying for it or anything else, just naturally. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Every label does it. Yeah. I love that because I remember, and forgive me if I get the numbers wrong here, but I remember, I think it was Complex did an article a while ago that said there was this thing in the music industry where they were using meme pages and granted yours is a little different than that, but kind of in the same category of social distribution. Yeah, it's the same category. Yeah. They they were using meme pages to basically promote songs and the evidence that I think they said it was like, it could increase the plays for a song by a few hundred percent, like two, three, four hundred percent, basically by just getting this in front of people on these meme pages. It's a super real thing, man. You look at the engagement on meme pages, 
pages. Some will get million plus likes on a post or a video and a million views. No influencer is getting that at the same, like an influencer who gets a million likes per post can charge 150,000, 200,000 plus dollars for a single post. A meme page will charge you a few thousand. Yeah. So it's just a much cheaper means of reaching the same amount of people. Yeah. yeah. How do you think that will change over time? Do you think that those numbers will continue to rise? I think that the creator and brand will get closer to one another. I think that that disparity given the equal reach and sometimes equal effect is ridiculous. And that's why I think even I have a great value prop to anybody who does it or wants to do it when I feel like doing that stuff, which isn't always. It depends obviously on who you're talking about from a creator standpoint. Some people have much stronger communities than other people relative to their following. But I would even argue that meme pages in some instances have a stronger reach than certain personalities or individuals. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Some creators that have 10,000 followers literally have more impact for a brand than somebody who has a million followers. Yeah. There are so many factors to take into account when evaluating somebody's Instagram or social media. A is when did they get their followers? A follower is more valuable actually if they followed recently. Let's say I can run a post on, even if it's promoting myself for my podcast or anything, right? Run a post on a page with 5 million followers and a page with 2 million if the 2 million was all from this year, I will take that in a heartbeat, no matter what the engagement pretty much for the five. And what's the logic behind that? Algorithm and inactive accounts and people not using their socials anymore and it being fresh on their mind. Like say somebody follows said YouTuber because they were a fan when they were 16. All right. Now they're 21. They're grown up and they don't like the same stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I think what's fascinating too is we've seen bigger names get involved in this stuff and we've seen traditional, what we'll call like, whether they're private equity or regular just asset management firms, buy some of these accounts. Like I remember seeing a while ago, Mark Cuban was an investor in one of these accounts through another business. I don't know if he was he like- bought, The company that he worked with bought NBA memes. He's a 50-50 partner in that company and they purchased 100% of at NBA memes, which I actually hosted a show for them during the bubble last year where I- we interviewed people, but yeah, Cuban understands it. I think people are starting to realize the value because like, candidly, I can say this to you because I turned it down, but I've been offered a few million for the socials. And because so many are being bought up, that tells you, A, they're more valuable because there are fewer. Like, look, Bleach Report buys House of Highlights, raises the value of every other page because there are fewer. And it costs more money and time to build it than to buy it. Yeah. So the value goes up. How much value do you think House of Highlights has created for Bleacher Report? Tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars annually. Yeah. I have to assume that was one of their greatest business decisions probably ever. <laughs> yeah, dude. And look, on Omar's side, one thing I'll say about him is he's a legend and he has proven that by doing it again, <laughs> like with SportsCenter. Yeah. He did it there and then he did it again. And now he's doing it personally too. He's somebody I have a ton of respect for, and, and I've told him that. Yeah, yeah. I think when it comes to Omar, and I don't know him well at all, but I always think back to like, you can either be early or you can be really good at something. And I think he had a good combination of both, right? And he was early to a trend and saw something accelerating, but he was also really good at it because to your point, he has built multiple pages at this point. He has a strong personal brand himself. And I think what we've seen is he had a good combination of both of those things. So it's fascinating to see. So let's move on to some of the stuff you're doing personally. I would love to learn more about, I know you have the podcast, so you have the Buster Show. How are you going about building this? Are you leveraging some of the platforms that you already have? Are you doing this starting from scratch? Just walk me through kind of your plan to build this. 
A lot of it is from scratch. I like that it's different. I think that that's fun. When I have NBA player guests, of course, I'm going to push that on Hoops Nation and highlights, but only when it makes sense. And I'm super critical of that content from a Hoops Nation perspective. I'll look at some of my stuff and say that's not good enough to go on Hoops Nation when I own both of the things and they're both babies in a sense. But I have a very long-term focus there. No rush, five to 10 to 20 year window. I just love talking to people and learning from people. And I think that given some of the other stuff that I've done has enabled me at such a young age to be able to access a lot of these people that I look up to and have a conversation, a long form conversation that would have never happened if it weren't for me having a podcast that a bunch of people listen to. Because like, I think some people would, but I'm not sitting down for an hour undivided with like Jerry West and Walt Clyde Frazier and other people that it's just not going to happen for an hour, completely undivided, just me and him, no interruptions. It's insane. And to be able to put that out for free for everybody else forever. I love that. That's sort of the thought process behind it. Accessibility to people, conversations, learning and putting it out for free. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's one of the misunderstood concepts of the podcast in general. People believe that you're doing it to make more money, you're doing it to sell sponsorships, you're doing it to build your audience. And to some degree, those things are true because you wouldn't do it otherwise. But ultimately- Those are are byproducts. I legitimately think that I would do it if I wasn't making anything else. Yeah, because having that distribution and that access, it's a win-win for both people, right? They want to come on the show, they want to promote things that they're talking about, things they're working on, talk, whatever. But ultimately, you get to sit down with people that you really want to talk to and learn from. And it's the ability to do that in public and have other people listen into, which I think that doesn't get talked about enough. And it, you know, increases the value of relationships, you know, as well as anybody that that is what it is. I have had outside business opportunities come from people who I met from having them on my podcast through somebody else on their team. Yeah. That's all you need to say about that. Or like when I invest in a company, if I angel invest in a company, I'll have the founder on the show and we'll talk about it and we'll talk about why I like it. And I only invest in like fun things. Like I invest in a bagel company. So it comes on and we talk about the salt on the bagels and like it's the best time ever. We put it out or like I invested in this basketball hoop product. We talk about basketball and hoops. It's fun. So I think there are so many benefits to podcasting. And honestly, Anybody that's a conversationalist and wants to reach people they otherwise couldn't should have a podcast. Yeah, that's a good point because I've thought about this for a long period of time and it used to be unconventional and now I believe it's become like just common knowledge at this point. But the idea that the best investors of tomorrow have the ability in the audience today and they're building that consistently because ultimately capital becomes a commodity, right? Just everyone has it. Everyone has the ability to go invest in businesses. There's millions of venture capital firms. There's a bunch of asset managers, private equity firms, all of this stuff that can give you money and access for your business. But what separates people? A lot of people want that access to that audience. And you have the ability to do that not only through the Instagram, through the podcast, through all these other things. So I think what people are realizing and waking up to is the personal brand matters a lot. The media company is super helpful, obviously, from a monetization standpoint. You can sell it eventually for a multiple of revenue and all these things. But ultimately, the personal brand is what could end up driving a lot more value from an investment perspective. Personal brands, I always say this, it's the only company you'll never make an exit on. That's a good way to look at it. That's all you need to know. I like that. All right, let's talk through what you're doing with the NFTs. So one of the things I think is really cool is you're using NFTs to grow the podcast. And you're not only doing it to grow the podcast, but it's creating this unique and authentic relationship with the community. Because 
when you look at not only consumer products, but podcasts in general and other social stuff, a lot of what's driving this is the community aspect of it, right? It's the greatest moat you can think of from the ability to grow these things and have people continuously talking about them and listening and downloading and doing these things. So NFTs, I believe, is a unique proposition that you're offering and doing with your listeners. Walk me through why you're doing that and how it works. Yeah, this is something that I know from collectibles, right? The second somebody spends a dollar on an item, they feel this emotion through their entire body about that thing or that player on the card or that item that they never otherwise would have felt. The same with when you invest in a stock or when you invest in a company, you feel this emotion, you want it to succeed. So it's that, but in NFTs, and I make sure that the utility makes it a great multiple of worth and value. So I released one, I call it utility mic. So it's called the Buster Show Utility Mics. And there's one mic for every episode of my podcast. And we release them new when new episodes come out. You know, Originally, they were 0.05 ETH. Now they're about 0.1 ETH. And it's been incredible. And the utility that I'm giving from that is mailing physical collectibles to their houses randomly by getting their addresses like personally to the discords and giving them early access to episodes and merch and drawings and posters of their mics and this community. And I want to keep growing it and building it. They also have their mic underneath each episode. So when you go to like the episodes on YouTube, they're all linked underneath and it's all one of one. And it's been really fun. And what I've seen from it is like, even on my socials, when I post about my podcast, it's those people who bought the mics that are engaging with it first, fastest, and the most. And that is a part of the power of NFTs. It brings a community and a sense of ownership that is both real and I think important to any business person or thing. Yeah. So how many episodes have you done now? You've done over a hundred, right? 107, I believe. Okay. Did you basically go out and you say you started at episode 90? Did you release 90 immediately and they yep. you went and tried to get people to buy them and then eventually you just released one per episode? Yep. We released 90, we released about 102 or a hundred. We started just a month ago yeah. or two months ago now. Yeah. We released every episode that we had. And then the ones that we had already filmed, but hadn't put out yet. And they all sold out. And now we release new ones when the episodes happen. So like, I just had Dwight Howard on and that mic sold in five seconds. Really? Yeah. So one of the things with podcasts that I believe is a common complaint, and I've certainly heard it from other people, is that it's a very one-sided conversation. Me and you are talking, so it's two-sided in that nature, but with the listener, it's one-sided. So they hear the conversation, but they don't have the ability to ask more questions. They don't have the ability to interject. They don't have the ability to dive deeper into certain topics, which I, I agree with to a point. There's obviously things that people have done to combat that with Discord chats, with social media questions, and all that kind of stuff. But do you see this NFT, what I'll call as an experiment for now, as that ability to add the audience in a community? the aspect? You know, no, because it doesn't add them to the conversation, but it does make them feel like they own something, which they do. Like people yeah. who own my mics own the only collectible that I will ever produce on the blockchain around that specific episode. And it's one of one. One day, I mean, there are a lot of things that I want to do for it, some of which I can't, can't say yet, but there's so much more growth for everybody in the podcast space. I think podcasts are the best. And, you know, when you look at things like video catalogs, like this episode that we're doing right now, there's the full episode, which I think is pretty evergreen based on all the stuff we're talking about. And then you can clip those up, have 10 evergreen clips. You can make micro clips from those clips to put on every social platform. You could have 50 pieces of content that are as good two years from now as they are today. And even better because we're both going to be more successful in two years and more people will want to watch it. Yeah. Right. So 
That's also the value of podcasts. They're infinite. It's like a movie, but it takes no effort. And to your point, really, the conversation is only about 10% of that. And the ability to cut them into clips, redistribute them, make trailers out of them, and keep that conversation going adds a lot of value. Where a single tweet, a single Instagram post, you don't have that ability. Algorithmically, your tweet is no good after a week. Yeah. Yeah, you can repost it, but it's still not ever going to do anything relative. And I saw someone comment on this the other night, actually, I forget who said it, but essentially they were like, a tweet is really no good after like two days. <laughs> like people forget about them. You know what I mean? And stuff like this is much more evergreen where you can post it and you can continue that conversation. I'll give you a crazy stat. So the top 10 videos on my podcast's highlights channel in the last 48 hours are all episodes that were done over three months ago. Wow. That you posted recently? Nope. That we posted then. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying you posted them months ago and they're the top but ones today still. The algorithm. One was yeah. Walt Clyde Frazier. One was Kelly Oubre. Like those guys are in the news. Like Kelly's playing well. Mac McClung just got signed by Chicago. Here's, here's what I think about podcasts. And I've never even said this before, but I feel like doing a podcast with somebody is the closest thing to investing in that person. Yeah. You put very little out and then you get to reap the digital benefits of that person's success in perpetuity. And do you try to time any of this up with like Google trends or anything of that nature? That's too much. It, yeah. You just got to do the best thing you can and let it ride and pick people who you believe in, right? You have people on the podcast that you like. I have people on my podcast that I believe will be super successful. You got to look at everything the same. You invest your time well, invest in your relationships well, invest in your podcast guests, invest in everything. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think there's any secret. Like some guy told me the other day that he was growth hacking his podcast and I'm like, it doesn't work like that, <laughs> right? And people like you or they don't. That's literally the secret to podcasting. Yeah, to be fair, there's things that you can do around it, right? I've done a giveaway where the podcast rocketed up the charts. You're giving away money. People love it, all this stuff, but it's not sustainable. You know what I mean? It, it just takes time. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they first start out. But let's transition a little bit to the physical collectibles in particular. I know you've been collecting recently. When did you start collecting physical memorabilia and collectibles? And what's your collection look like today? When I was a kid, like same, about the same age, even earlier than I started doing the Facebook stuff, I was buying basketball cards, baseball cards, just because I liked it. You know, and those turned out to be like, I mean, my craziest stories are I was buying Giannis Prism rookie cards for $1. Those in a PSA 10 are thousands of dollars now. So did you keep any uh, of them? I kept a couple of them. All right, there you uh, go. By default, because I left the hobby from probably 2016 to 2018. And then in 2018, I started seeing the buzz. Gary was saying some stuff. And like I, I jumped back in and started buying some more stuff. And then 2019, it went insane. 2020, it went even crazier with the pandemic. And, you know, obviously that's that's been a blast. But my collecting journey now has taken me so many directions. Like literally my personal brand now on some platforms is entirely collectibles based. I have a collectible show called talking shop where we talk and interview the biggest collectors in the world of all different assets and things of that nature. And it's a lot of fun, but my personal collection now I'm super deep into sports cards. Obviously goats is who I like to collect, but tickets from important events, historically significant things. So everything from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln, here I'll even, I got a couple things here. I'll show you. Like here are two examples of things that I, I love. This is a George Washington three-line note. So this was in 1760, 16 years before the Declaration of Independence. And it is a, so 
background context on George Washington, he was buying a ton of land. He was a land surveyor. He actually went into debt because he bought too much land when he was younger. Not that many people know that George Washington was in debt, but he was. And he had to he had to get money from friends. And that is a receipt of a bond that he sold a friend to rid his debts. So this is one of, I believe, two known examples of George Washington proof that he was in debt. And I own I own it. And how much is something like that worth? I think thirty to fifty thousand. I pay it a lot less. I just think it's incredible and it's perfect. That one is perfect. Here's Abraham Lincoln appointing a postmaster general in what's the year? Eighteen sixty-five. So a few months before he was assassinated, he started his second term and he appointed everybody that he wanted to. And this is the official document. It's folded up in here. It has the presidential seal on the other side. I forget what state this was, but appointing a state's postmaster general. But the craziest thing about this one, and I've never seen another, and this is why I love collectibles and and this sort of thing. Can you read what the grade is? It's a 10. It's a 10. Wow. That does not happen. Yeah. That's incredible. 1865. Like, you know, the famous Honus Wagner card? Yep. This is 60 years before that. Yeah, that's crazy it's to think about. 60 years older, and it got a 10. There are no Wagner towns. Yeah. And this wasn't meant to be collected or saved. Obviously, it's grading the signature, not the entire thing, but pretty incredible. The Washington, this is an eight. I was actually really pumped. I didn't get the Lincoln graded. I bought it graded, but this I got graded. There's so much text. He writes the amount, so it says 16 shillings. It's insane. And then the due date, that's almost 300 years old now. Yeah, it's That crazy. is the stuff that I love because not just that, but look, I, I love baseball. This is the famous Derek Jeter rookie, the SP foil rookie from 93. I got a bunch of them, but like, I love that stuff as much as the next guy. But when we're talking about scarcity, when we're talking about historical value, when we're talking about icon status, it doesn't get any better than George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And also the important thing to look at when investing in anything, I think, especially in physical collectibles and even digital collectibles and NFTs too, is who else owns the items that you're looking at buying? Who else owns the items that you're trying to buy? Because that's who you're going to be in conversation with about these things. That's the community that you're entering. And I was looking at like, who else is going to be sitting at the cap table that owns a George Washington document? I want to know those people. So I think of it as well as like a membership pass to that club of people that it gives you. If you looked at your entire portfolio of collectibles, both physical and digital, what would the split be today? Not counting the Buster Show mics? Yeah. Not counting that, it would be 80-20 physical. Okay, so you're still much heavier towards the physical. Yeah. Things that I study too are what happens in like financial crashes and surprisingly the presidential historical stuff does pretty well. Yeah. Uh, So I I look at it as a very safe investment. I think to my knowledge, right, that stuff's never going to go out of style, right? It's always going to have some inherent value to it, just given the historical context of it. But also what we've seen with the NFT space in general is there's obviously a lot of hype around and everything like that, but we've also been in a massive bull market for most digital assets. And when you think about bull markets, what happens? People go further out the risk curve to get those returns that they're looking for. So with NFTs, I certainly think that's happened to a capacity of like, are 100% of current NFTs in the market valuable? No. Is it 50%? I don't know. Is it 30%? Is it 20%? I don't know. But you're obviously- point one. Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously buying items in the physical sense that are much less risky. 
Unless it has utility, there's 100% risk on any NFT asset. Yeah, that's a fair point. So one of the things I'm fascinated with is the idea of like how you manage all of this stuff. And I'm assuming you have some type of process or correct me if I'm wrong, if you don't around like not only bidding, but how you track the price of some of these assets, how you think about your portfolio in general of the physical collectible space. You're obviously friends with Darren Rovell also. And like one of the things that he's talked to me a, a bunch about is like his process of valuing things. He's very strategic when it comes to not only buying things at a certain price, but when to sell them also. So just talk to me how you think about that. Yeah. Darren's one of my best friends. We talk about this stuff every day. And unlike him, I go much more like granted, I study this stuff all day long. So it's less, I see an item and then I have to go research it. If I see an Abraham Lincoln signature, I can tell you what it sold for an auction without even looking at the auction sale price. I just know that from enough research over enough years, that's what happens. I do things based on feel. Like I've seen stuff sight unseen, like this Washington sight unseen, no research done. I bought it because the guy that I bought it from was the lead authenticator for PSA. You know, he's been in this his entire life and has an auction house himself. So a lot of it is just knowing the right people. I will ask second opinions of five or 10 close friends who are also in this space full time, including Darren. I'll ask his opinion on stuff. And are you buying some of this stuff just like peer to peer still like offline or are you using auction houses or doing like fractional ownership also? 90% is private deals. I'd say 2% I bid in auctions. Like I just want an original Jurassic Park poster in a heritage auction. I was excited about that. I like original posters. I bought the first Indiana Jones poster. It says from the creators of Jaws and Star Wars because nobody knew what Indiana Jones was. And those are super rare because it says on the bottom in tiny text, it says to destroy, don't let this get out uh, wow. or send back to the studio or destroy. So they were all destroyed except for a couple. I do fractional I'm a huge believer. I probably own hundred assets on rally 50 or 20 on Otis. And I'm working on a, on some other collectibles platform stuff with some of these companies. I believe in that very much too, but some stuff I have to have complete control over. Yeah. I like that. One of the things that I like about you and why I think we're probably friends is the idea of like, you talk about things you like on social media and other places of just like, you can tell that you really like collectibles. You're studying this stuff every day. It's things that you enjoy talking about and researching and buying and selling and all this stuff. And I think in my mind, and I'm sure yours too, like authenticity is just a big part of kind of the success on the platforms that you've built. It's everything, man. It's not even worth being successful if you're not authentic. Like it's literally not worth the time or anything, that's like a nightmare to have like a large following around something that you don't like because you're just going to be miserable. And it eventually shows if it doesn't from the start. I really think that that's a curse. And I feel incredibly bad for anybody who builds something around something that they don't like because they think it will be more successful than doing the thing around the thing that they do. Yeah. Maybe it takes a little longer, but I certainly think there's part of it to your point of just like happiness and doing what you like and enjoying it much more than the other thing. I really believe too, that the byproduct is it will be more successful. Like if I decided today that I'm going to be a successful dancer or like, I don't know, something random like that, I might, but I will never be as successful as I will doing content on collectibles in any other industry other than like the stuff that I also love because a natural byproduct is wanted to put in the hours when if you didn't love the thing, you wouldn't. Yeah, I love that. All right, I got two more questions before we wrap up. Yeah. So one of them is, what is your normal day like? You obviously run a bunch of accounts, you're doing collecting and all this stuff. I know you have people that help you out or work for you, but like just walk me through what you do on a daily basis. 
You will be shocked. I do nothing. I do nothing. I literally do nothing any day ever. I have a team of six that runs Hoops Nation stuff. I have a team of five who runs my podcast. I have a separate team of three who do my collectibles content. My mom makes my invoices. Like I don't do anything at all. And I love that. Literally all I do is like hop on and have fun conversations with people like you. And like, obviously I talk to my team and talk to people and work out twice a day. So I do that a lot and travel. Definitely very grateful. Yeah. You'd be surprised how little I do. Yeah. I love that though. I mean, look, it's funny to think of someone who has this business and is doing so many things, it seems from the outside saying I do nothing. But part of the beauty of that is like the idea of leverage and the idea that you can hire other people to help you, good people that can help you build these businesses. And then you can focus your time on creative work. Because I think the thing that you probably enjoy the most is doing podcasts, is going and looking at collectibles, is doing auctions, is talking to other people about these things. And that creative stuff is what separates you probably from a lot of other people. The most fun thing, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, is when I have an idea just to build something new and I have the people around me already just to go out and do it. Three weeks ago, I was like, I can't say the name of it yet because I don't want to make it public, but I was like, let's start a new basketball media company just for the hell of it and make it big and sell it. Why not? I already have a big one. So why can't I just grow another one and sell it to a brand? So we started doing that. The same team just does it on this other page now. And like those things just make me feel very productive. And I think there are a lot of false senses of productivity, like traveling is a false sense of productivity. Doing like busy work is a false sense of productivity. But that stuff that I know, like one decision or one thought in my head can now create all of this value for me and other people. That's the most productive feeling in the world. I love it. All right. Lastly, I have to ask, what did your mom say when you were like, I'm not going to college. I want to just go do this stuff on the internet. She was like, you have to meet with a college guidance counselor. So we went, I said, okay. I toured a couple of colleges back when I was a junior in high school, toured uh, Syracuse, which is my grade school. I would have gone to Newhouse if I'd gone there and Northeastern. My grades were not good enough to get into Northeastern, I don't think. And I had a terrible SAT score. I'm super dyslexic and ADHD too. So those things didn't help any of that. But I remember we went in to meet with the college guidance counselor and she looked at my scores, my grades, which weren't very good. And, you know, all of that. And she was like, you were the first person that I've ever suggested not to go to college. And that was it. The decision was made there. Amazing. So shout out to shout out to that woman that charged a lot of money to tell me not to go to college. I mean, that's amazing because that's not an answer you would expect. You go to someone and you're super successful in high school and they're like, no, you should still go to college. You have a lot of time in front of you, all these things. But that lady must have been ahead of her time because I think that was much more common today than it was then. Or my scores were so bad. That she was like, the only way you're going to make anything of yourself is if you just focus on this out. now. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much how it was. I love I it. Mean, I wish I could remember my, my scores, but it was like so low that I would not get into any school. That's how crazy it was. And I tried my hardest and I got like extra time and everything. So for any kids out there who aren't good at that stuff, just know it's not the end. Yeah, th there is hope. Well, at the same time, you could just blame it on you were spending your time building a business. So I think it worked out all right for you. Okay, Buster, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Where can we send people? What's your Twitter and your Instagram handles? Twitter is at BusterShare. Instagram is at Buster. Yeah, catch me there. All right, man. I appreciate it again. And we'll have to do this again soon. This was fun, man. Thank you.